Hey, good people. Welcome back to Dismantling Injustice, a show where we explore and offer analysis on issues affecting folks who encounter the criminal legal and immigration systems. I'm Carl. This month on Dismantling Injustice, we're looking at the issue of surveillance, its history, its impact, its future, and importantly, how communities are fighting it, especially when it works to exacerbate policing, detention, and incarceration. Today, we're joined by Rafa Kidvai from If, When, How, and it was such a refreshing conversation. We definitely spoke about some of the challenges with surveillance, but we also discussed the ways that communities have fought back against government and corporate um, oppression. Maybe I'm a little biased because Rafa was a public defender like myself, but I was truly enamored by our conversation. So we'll be right back with Rafa. Dismantling Injustice is brought to you by Envision Freedom Fund. Envision Freedom is a New York-based nonprofit organization that works to dismantle the unjust and oppressive immigration and criminal legal systems while meeting the critical and most urgent needs of individuals impacted by these systemic injustices in the present. You can learn more about our work by visiting us online at envisionfreedom.org or by following us on social media. So welcome back, everyone. We are joined by Rafa Kidvai from If, When, How. Thank you so much for joining us, Rafa. Um, and I just wanted to start um, with them. Could you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, how you find found yourself working um, on this um, interesting cross-section between data, privacy, and reproductive rights, and just your movement work more broadly? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me. It's a joy to be here. Um, and so, as you said, I work at If, When, How. I'm the director of the Repro Legal Defense Fund, which is a bail fund and a legal defense fund for pregnant people who are criminalized for their pregnancy outcomes. So that could be abortions or it could be um an allegation that someone did something to cause a loss, even if it was a miscarriage or a stillbirth. And really our work is around making sure people have the resources to fight the state when they are criminalized. So we'll cover bail and other legal expenses like attorney's fees, the cost of expert witnesses, uh, mitigation specialists, social workers, cell phones, some of the stuff that I know that the Envision Freedom Fund has a history of doing, right? We know sometimes that providing someone with a cell phone um, is extremely important to their release for court. And so some of that stuff, which I actually learned a lot about from a lot of you and my work with um, with you before the Repro Legal Defense Fund. I was a fellow at Court Watch, a legal fellow, while I was a public defender in Brooklyn, New York at the Legal Aid Society. So really, I come to this work as a public defender, thinking about people who have their data, you know, intruded upon constantly and then have it used to criminalize them and punish them by the state. Wow. Yeah. And this is, um, you know, at least from what we've heard in the, what I've heard in the media and what I've heard some of my friends speak about, this is just increasingly happening in the reproductive justice space, even before the Supreme Court ruling, um, this was beginning. Um, and, you know, I know there's a lot of concern about the increasing surveillance of pregnant people um, post row. Um, well, first, are these concerns or to what extent are these concerns valid? And, you know, how does it look? How does surveillance look in the reproductive um, space? 
Such good questions. I love that you talked about how things were trash even before the obliteration of Roe. I think that that's absolutely true. I think the sort of post-Roe reality as people talk about it has been the reality for people when Roe was in effect. I think a good way to think about it is um, one of my colleagues, Aaron Grant, talked about how there are 3,500 counties in the United States. Um, and after the obliteration of Roe, only 35 have access to abortions. I'm sorry, 30 have access to um, abortion care for people. But when Roe was in existence, it was still only 50 counties. And so I think, yes, of course, things are worse than they were before. And at the same time, 50 counties getting abortion care was never enough. Um, black and brown people, immigrants, people, people with disabilities, trans and queer people, all, all the same folks that are criminalized now were being criminalized, you know, before the fall of Roe. Um, and I think the state has had a long-standing interest in controlling our bodily autonomy, um, in limiting reproductive care, and has been doing so for a long time. So in some ways, yes, these are new struggles, and in some ways, they're not. Um, I think privacy is another one. I think everyone really jumped to thinking about period tracking apps and talking about, you know, um, like what fancy surveillance tools will be used now. And the truth is, it, we don't need fancy surveillance tools. The whole family court system is barely able to hold their data on computers and still is extremely powerful in terms of how it surveils our communities and our families. So the first thing I want to say is, yes, think about period tracker apps. Think about switching to things like Yuki, which were specifically built to protect your privacy, um, were built to limit reproductive control and intrusion from the state. And at the same time, you don't. We don't need. We don't need anything new to surveil us. We have been being surveilled, if that makes sense. In the reproductive space, I think a little bit what's jarring for people is it's it's my body. It's like my bodily autonomy. I think that that intrusion should, I think, feel as violent as it is. We are all entitled and deserve data privacy. We deserve the ability to make decisions about our bodies without people watching us and telling us that what we do is wrong or bad or worthy of criminalization. Um, and I think reproductive control is both a tool of power and control in intimate partner relationships and via the state, which is often the sort of ultimate abuser. And so in our context, what we see is the same stuff we see in all criminal cases, cops looking at your phones without um, a warrant. This happens all the time. Um, so the same stuff that we're seeing. Now, I think the primary thing to remember though is that the major, the main source of surveillance in the reproductive space is through community and the people around you. And so, you know, you live in New York, Carl, you take the subway maybe, and you hear them say, see something, say something. And what they're really telling us is look around you, surveil the people around you, report the people around you. And what you know is that that makes you feel unsafe because everyone around you is suddenly watching you to get you in trouble of some sort. And the same is true in the reproductive space. What we're asking, the state is asking people to do, and what anti-choice people are asking people to do is watch your neighbors, watch your partners, watch your community members. And then once you create this culture where something is wrong or bad, report people, and those are what we see as the primary sources of surveillance. Um, so the cops doing the same things they've already done, number one, 
regard they don't need fancy technology to get into your phone they already get into your phone um social media which i think is you know gives us a lot of gifts in some ways and also strips us away of a lot of our privacy um because we have a culture where we're told that we should give up that information about ourselves and prosecutors and people are watching us or surveilling us can, can use that three i think and this is the major one is the folks around you so healthy safe communities as always are the answer um and then of course there's like yes it is absolutely true that um there is fancy technological stuff happening also to try to get your data and you should um, people should really listen and watch out for anything the Digital Defense Fund says, because I think they're really, really smart in talking about um, surveillance in the repro space. That was a very long answer. No, that was so good. And there's so many gems in there. Um, you know, I was a public defender for a while, the Bronx Offenders, and I can't tell you how many times prosecutors or you know, the police during their investigation would look at my client's social media profiles. And we know like, you know, just from organizations like Media Justice that that's like how it's social media is increasingly used to target communities of color. And you know, like police use it to decide where they're going to patrol and when and so forth. And of course it's going to be used um, to target folks, particularly people of color looking to have an abortion. Of course, that's how it's going to be used um, because that's just, you know, anytime something bad like this happens, it always impacts um, folks of color, women of color more than everyone else. Um, and that's, you know, it's it's not, and often it's not recognized until, you know, the majority race feels threatened, but yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, as a public defender, the number of times you would get discovery and I would have your clients, Facebook, social media profiles and their pictures. And, you know, wasn't even like looking through um, very far into someone's social media, just their sort of profile pictures, who they associate with. That's a lot of information right there. It's like a billboard about who the people in your community are. Yeah. Um, the other thing that I, you know, that struck my attention that you speak about is Oftentimes, you know, these days when we speak about surveillance, especially post 9-11, which conveniently, you know, where it's we're recording this during the week of 9-11, we think of surveillance as electronic surveillance. And, you know, as again, you know, we, we think of these technological tools, we think of social media surveillance. We don't think of just our neighbors watching us and reporting, you know, reporting us, which is Again, there's a long history of doing that, especially in the family court system. Oftentimes it's neighbors that report individuals, it's teachers, it's, you know, it's individuals reporting in social settings or in community settings where we don't, you know, we, we have no reason to believe someone's watching us that closely. Absolutely. There's this beautiful piece of art by Micah Bazant that maybe you've seen that says like, I'm totally butchering the actual text on it, but it says like, I don't want my community to, to, to be watching me. I want them to see me. And that distinction feels so special. Again, I, I know that's not the exact language that's on that poster, but absolutely that feeling that, you know, so many of our clients specifically are reported by their medical providers that use a false understanding of mandatory reporting laws and really just a culture of viewing certain people. And we know who those people are, specifically Black people, migrants, Muslims, you talked about 9-11, um, 
as suspicious. They're, just their existence is suspicious. And God forbid someone, of course, exists at the intersection of all those identities, you know, and then they walk into a clinic and you view them as someone who is not you know, who is suspicious and uncaring around their pregnancy and therefore even their loss, even their deepest pain, they don't get to have like the inhumanity of being denied the pain of a loss only to be met with punishment and, you know, shackling and criminalization, incarceration, caging. It's just, it's just unfathomable, but that's what we're being told that like the people that we're supposed to lean into and give our trust to are the same people that will report us. And that's really scary because you want your doctor to see you. You don't want them to be watching you, you know? Yeah. And, you know, this points to just, you know, the, the long history of injustices in the medical system against um, people of color, you know, like either forcing women to have children when they don't want to, or like, you know, like performing all sorts of procedures on women of color, um, you know, like, you know, which, you know, hinders their ability to have children. And now criminalizing abortion, this is all in the same lineage of policies that, um, that you know, that really harm our communities and our families, frankly. Um, well, how does this, you know, as we, you know, like, it's clear that, you know, we should expect surveillance to be used to criminalize more people post row. How do you see this impacting the work that you do at If, When, How? And, you know, if, it, if it's changed your work at if, if, When, How at all, it'd be interesting to hear. Yeah, um, I think we can absolutely anticipate more surveillance of people after row. I, you know, you know this again, you just talked about being a public defender, that prosecutions are often about culture. What is what a prosecutor can get away with prosecuting is what the culture allows and creates the space for. And when there's pushback, you know, I, I started did a lot of activism with um formerly folks um at BCBF about the DA race in Brooklyn. And really what we saw is that if we shift the culture and we make it um untenable for a prosecutor to prosecute certain things because truly it'll impact their election. It'll impact how their constituency, you know, sees them. They're likely to shift on it. And what we're, what we see with this sort of criminalization that will stem from abortion is often it's about stigma. It's about culture. It's about many of these laws that are used to prosecute pregnant people and abortion seekers and people who have abortions are, are not, they're not valid prosecutions. I mean, Fundamentally, I believe all prosecutions are invalid, right? But beyond that, that they're just not with not allowed within the law. Um, and yet these prosecutions happen. And so it's not about whether there's a law or not that says something is criminalized. It's really about culture. The same with sexual assault cases or DV cases or any of these things. These things about culture. You can, you don't have to, you know, um, and in actually I'll go back to the repro space specifically because our clients are so often seen as suspicious and quote unquote as like criminalizable in some way. And I'm sort of made up that word, but as worthy of criminalization, what's on trial when you go to trial is not the law, is not science. No one has to prove anything. All you have to do is rely on stigma and culture to win these prosecutions. And that's why they're really bad for juries because they're about culture. And so I think some of the things to really, really remember in our space is that the culture is shifted and is shifting in the legal sense. There are prosecutors right now running in counties on the grounds of being anti-abortion. And 
there's a prosecutor, I believe, in Ohio running on um, as an adoptee talking about how, you know, if her got like, thank God her parents didn't abort her or whatever the language is that they used to sort of right, to create this, this messy um, connection between adoption and abortion, which is just such so complicated and a farce. But running on this platform, her criminal cases as a prosecutor have nothing to do with this, but there is enough room in the culture to win an election on the grounds that you are going to come after people that have abortions, mm-hmm. regardless of what the law says. And so I think in that way, the increase in stigma is my, I think the biggest threat. Um, I think the other problem with stigma is that, yeah, we, you turns the people around you all, you know, the cases that we see, like it's doctors or it's friends or it's family members or it's abusive partners, right? Like we know that, uh, that the legal system has been able to be co-opted by abusive partners in the defensive space. A lot of my clients were survivors of intimate partner violence and were there as defendants in criminal cases, as was true for you, I'm sure. The legal system is just not adept at these things, but it can be manipulated. And so I think we'll see a lot of that when, when the power leans towards oppressing people around their bodily autonomy, that's an abusive path. And so it creates a lot more space, I think, for abuse and violence in that space, in that way. Um, And then I think, you know, generally you can't tell, for instance, between a miscarriage and someone having taken medication to have an abortion. And yet (laughs) what this, and so what this means is we're going to be punishing people for their miscarriages because we cannot tell, right? And so the same with stillbirths. Like we use things like the lung float test, which are nonsense, fake science and have been proved to be so, right? But like they're as reliable as a lie detector, which is not allowed. And at the same time, here we are using this junk science to prosecute people. And I think that just, that's really scary too, because as usual, we're going to see prosecutors do what they always do in our cases, regardless of outcome, allege there was a live birth so then they can overcharge people and say that there was a homicide, right? Which is just a mechanism to enhance bail. It's just a mechanism to overcharge people so that you have more negotiating power, all the things that you know. I hate to tell you things that you know, but like that kind of violence, it does so much harm. People plead to things all the time under that kind of abusive pressure. People when it's hopeless like that, you make decisions that are also in in the realm of hopelessness. And so I think we'll see just a lot more people experiencing, even if their cases are dismissed, even if we're able to argue, which we sometimes are, that these are not rooted in the law. By that point, someone's already served a sentence. We're talking about winning on appeal. At that point, you've lost your job, your livelihood. You know, an open misdemeanor is bad enough for someone's life. An open homicide case, as they fight it for years, that's the end of employment. So I think the scary part is not just criminalization. It's the sort of cascade of shit and violence that happens afterwards. Um, And the last thing I just want to say is that the immigration system and the family system work in parallel, which means that they don't just work together to punish someone, they actually just layer punishment by having these parallel pathways of simultaneous punishment. So even if your criminal case is resolved, you have immigration consequences to worry about. What is a homicide dismissal in an immigration context? Like, you don't need to have been convicted of a crime to be punished because of being arrested. You know, the immigration context is so different. And as another major site of surveillance, every time we fill out those forms, you know, I'm as a Muslim, I moved here post the year after 9-11 from Pakistan. And 
I was like, here, I want to go to college, take all my information ever because I wanted to do this thing. And in retrospect, like that was a lot of information I gave. I mean, everything on you. (laughs) Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. You know, in the immigration space, it really doesn't matter. Like, you know, you could be deported, you know, and not having, having not spent one day in prison, you know? Um, and so, you know, I guess this leaves me with the question is like, what's the path forward if there is one? Yes. I always like say that this, this point makes me, I should be really hopeless and heartbroken at this point. And I am, and I had that moment and it's sort of an ongoing undertone of my life, this deep heartbreak about what's happening. Right. And at the same time, and this is not a silver lining response at all. There is nothing good about any of the violence that we've seen through the legal system, but one, it was never enough. So we better do better this next time right? Like Roe was not enough. We cannot say that enough times. And so we created so many false di- hierarchies between types of abortion as a, as a result of that culture, right? Who is worthy of an abortion? The trimester framework is nonsense. There should be no arbitrary line about when someone can access life-saving, life-giving healthcare. That is just not a thing that other people get to decide. And so these arbitrary lines, exceptions are bullshit. Like, you know, we spent so much time talking about exceptions, the rape exception in, in the abortion context. Yes, absolutely. That this, this is not a conversation we should be having. People should be able to access abortion care when they have experienced sexual violence and, and harm like that. And also, that is not a line we need to be drawing. We, we can do better than those lines, number one. Number two, I think the path forward as always, but in this particular context, is to listen to Black women. I think that people have been talking about reproductive justice, have been naming the violences of reproductive harm for so long. And I think there's this unfortunate problem that till white women are afraid that someone's coming for their IVF, they don't care about reproductive justice. And that's a problem. So I think the path forward is to all of us individually do better. on all of our movement fronts. You don't have to be in the reproductive justice space to be contributing to reproductive justice. Um, So I think that, I think we need to do the path forward is really building more connections between trans people and the reproductive justice movement. Specifically, I think realizing what you said earlier is that these are part of the same schema. It's the same logic of violence and control. The same people are being criminalized. So we need to do better by building solidarity with trans communities. And then I think, really, I think fundamentally the path forward is shifting culture. I think it's it's doing better in our personal lives. It's like not seeing a pregnant person and judging them. It's not judging the person on the subway for their parenting. It's all the different little things that we do to really make it a violent space for pregnant people. We need to do much better. You know, every time we talk about women as being pregnant and crazy, we are really replicating a really fundamental trope of reproductive violence. And so the path forward is just to do better in our personal lives, is to show more humanity, build more solidarity, um, and yeah, and build back something much better. Thank you so much. Um, 
you know, that was our last question. I wanted to, I do want to put extra emphasis on something you said for our listeners, and that is to listen, you know, really listen to Black women who've been talking about this for years, for like for decades, um, you know, and sort of been, you know, sounding the alarm um, to no avail. Um, and I wanted to point out two books that I read a while ago that sort of, you know, like got me thinking about this. One of them is sort of a classic medical apartheid um, in America by Harriet A. Washington. Um, there's a whole section on reproductive justice um, that's just, you know, it really breaks it down in terms that I think everyone could sort of get and then Killing the Black Body by Dorothy Roberts, which, you know, of course, um, Robert put her hand to her heart. And that's like the exact sentiment I have. Um, it's such an amazing book. Um, so if you're looking for something to read, you know, just to begin to think about this, I'd strongly recommend those two books. Um, but Rafa, thank you so much for being so gracious with your time. Um, this was super, just super informative, um, you know, Reality, our podcast is about political education, um, and you've definitely served that to us um, today. So thanks so much for joining us. Oh my God, no, thank you for having me. Can I make two quick plugs very quickly? Please. Which is reprolegalhelpline.org for anyone that needs to access information about the legality and access um, around abortion care. And then the other one is the Repro Legal Defense Fund, which is the legal defense fund I talked about earlier. Um, so if you or anyone you know is experiencing state violence, whether it's in the family, immigration, or criminal realm, please reach out to us. And I hope that we can serve you and be there for you. Um, yeah, those are my plugs. Yes, thanks again for all the work that you do. And yeah, listeners, please reach out um, if um, Rafa and if when, how can support you. Um, thanks a lot. Talk to everyone later. Bye. Thanks again for joining us. Dismantling Injustice is brought to you by Envision Freedom Fund, an organization that works to transform the immigration and criminal legal systems while meeting the critical needs of individuals impacted by these systems daily. To learn more about our work and donate, visit us at envisionfreedom.org. That's envisionfreedom.org. Dismantling Injustice was created by Sally Israel. Our executive producer is Abigail Wolf. This podcast is produced and engineered by Yassi Solutions and hosted by Carl Hammett Lipscomb. That's me. Special thanks to the team at Envision Freedom for being amazing. Until we're all free, peace out.